0: And amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, if you have a device, we go through the English Standard Version, aka the ESV, and you can go ahead and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter two. And you're going to give me a minute to get there. We've been going through two really vital and crucial teachings of the Bible uh, in, in terms of our salvation. All right, talking about our salvation. The first one we went through last week was called justification. And uh, this week, we're going to kind of be hitting sort of the back end of justification, which is a word called sanctification. So last week, um, do a little recap for us. Uh, justification means to be declared righteous by God, all right? So there's a dilemma for all of us as human beings. The human dilemma, the human condition is that we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by birth, and that's just the way it is. Um, we're born as self-lovers. We're not born as God-lovers, um, that makes us unable to stand before God in his holiness. And we say holiness, what we're saying by that is God's set-apartness, the fact that he's not like us. Actually, Paul, when he was writing a letter to uh, his, his, uh, the, the, the young pastor he was mentoring, Timothy, he, he described God as somebody who lives in unapproachable light. I mean, listen to that word, unapproachable light. I mean, God wasn't using hyperbole when we go all the way back to the Old Testament when he told Moses, by the way, who is described as the most humble man on the face of the earth, God wasn't using hyperbole telling Moses, by the way, Mo, if you see me, because Moses desired to see God, just see his face. And God said, Moses, if you see me, like you're out, like you're going to die. Like he wasn't just making that up. He wasn't trying to be cute. And what that does for us is it gives us a picture of God's holiness and his set apartness. And and, when we think about Moses and we think about him looking at God and and, and if he did, he would die. And Paul describing uh, uh, God's holiness as, as unapproachable light, it just, it allows us to remember that, man, we don't have any fighting chance. Like there's no fighting chance for us. I mean, I don't remember anyone here winning the award for most humble person in the world. Right? So, if, if that was the case with Moses, a guy that God just dramatically used as he used him to lead his people uh, out of captivity and slavery, I mean, man, it gives us a little bit of some context to where we stand before God. And that's God's righteousness and that's God's holiness, right? And it gives us a picture. It gives us a picture of how bankrupt our own righteousness is. It's like trying to launder, you know, counterfeit money. I mean, it looks like cash. I want to use it like cash, but the problem is, is that it, it hasn't been created and approved by the U.S. government, right? So it's, it's cash, but it's not really cash, right? We don't get to use it for its intended purpose, and that's why we need the righteousness of Christ imputed or transferred to our account, right? Because our account, our righteousness account is bankrupt. It's not good enough. So it means when God looks at you, when the righteousness of Christ has been imputed and transferred to your account, he approves because he sees his son, which is real righteousness. It's legit righteousness. It's the real stuff. So here's just a ridiculous illustration that I'm going to regret, but picture me stepping onto the field at OSU this fall, wearing a Buckeyes uniform, right? I got the pads and the, you know, the little tighty tight pants that they all wear that are really cute. And um, now listen, when you look at me, right up in the stands, unless I trip, you're not going to see Ronnie Martin, a dude who thinks Buckeyes are actually delicious chocolate peanut butter concoctions. All right. You're going to see a Buckeye on the field right? Obviously, ready to get tackled to his death, you know, sure, but a buckeye nonetheless. So what that does is it gives us a really horrible picture of justification, right? Justification is God seeing us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which allows him to look at us and say, you're cool. I, you know, not, not cool like you're awesome, but cool like we're good. We're good here because now when I look at you, I see Christ's righteousness, So since justification means that we're declared righteous by Christ's righteousness and not our own, here's what it also means. It also means that we don't cooperate with God or come to God on our own terms. That's not what it means, right? It's not like we sit down with him like we're sitting down with two, you know, power brokers at a business lunch where we negotiate the terms and then we sign on the dotted line for our salvation deal. Like that's not what's 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 happening at all it's not transactional you don't believe me let's go to ephesians 2 verse 8 ephesians 2 verse 8 says this for by grace you have been saved through faith boom that just proved everything i just said right there ephesians 2 verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then Paul goes on to say this, For we are his workmanship, all right? So we are, so, we are people that he is crafting, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is those good works that God has created beforehand so that we can walk in him. Now, if you're saved if you're saved, it's because God chose to save you. And you responded to this because the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart to make it so. So at the end of the day, what we do here at Substance is we look into God's word and we give him the credit for all of those types of things. And we can argue with that and you can argue with that. Like that can hit you. What do you mean? He did it all. What? I didn't cooperate with that? No, 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 no. He gets all the credit, and if you argue with that, just like we just read, it's because you want to boast. It's because you want to boast in it. What you're really saying is, at the end of the day, you probably don't realize you're saying it like this, but heres I'm just going to tell you what you're saying if you say that. You're saying, I wasn't really all that dead. That's technically what you're saying. You're like, I must have contributed something to my salvation, right? Well, the problem... The problem with that is that dead people last time I checked like aren't super active. So like my uncle Arthur died in 1996. Like I have not received a text from my uncle since 96 when I was at the funeral. Not a real active guy since we buried my uncle Arthur. The problem is that dead people don't get a second wind. They don't typically reach over and gulp down a Red Bull right, to get a little pick-me-up in the grave. Ephesians 2.1, if you go back, says, you were dead in the sins and trespasses you once walked. So we, we want to lock into this concept for us that dead is dead, which is the reason why we needed God to do what he did through Christ, Right? So remember, when we look back at the story of Lazarus, remember how Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, a guy guy that was dead, and he raised him from the dead? Now remember, let's just lock into that story a little bit. The only reason Lazarus is hanging in a tomb is because dude has been dead for three days. He's dead. He's not recouping. He's not coming off of like some, you know, some time with the boys in the fraternity after a crazy weekend. Like, that's not what's going on. Remember what happened when Jesus was standing there? Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And then what happened? Well, our boy Laz comes back to life. And then he walks out of the tomb to Jesus. So the picture there is God regenerates. We respond with faith. And then we walk with Jesus. All right? That's the act of justification for us. John Calvin says this though, and this is going to get us into what we're going to talk about today. Faith alone saves. He's talking about justification by faith alone, not works. Faith alone saves. But listen to this, the faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves is never alone. And this gets us into understanding what justification is, which is the last part, as my pages are all going crazy and haywire up here. The last part of in Ephesians 2, verse 10, it clearly sort of brings us into view of that, right? Not a result of works that no one may boast. And then he says this. I'm going to read it again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is sanctification? It's that. That's sanctification. It's living a life that is pleasing to God. Sanctification is what happens after a person has been justified. It's the process, listen to these words I'm using, like process. It's the process by which those who are declared righteous are made holy. So the moment we are justified, man, a change has occurred inside of us by which the Holy Spirit begins to conform us into the image of Jesus. Kind of like when you were a kid and you're, you know, you're, Dad was putting in cement, and he said, hey, put your palm down into the cement so that we can get kind of an image of your palm when you were like five years old, so that when you're 20, we can look at it and go, oh, look how cute the small palm was. And so that's kind of like what it is. It's like when you press your palm into wet cement, as it dries, it forms the imprint of your hand. That's the work God is doing in us in sanctification. He's forming us to look like his son. But having said that, Unlike justification, it's a cooperative process where God works in us as we work to please Him. Let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians. You just want to make a sharp right. Go up a few books and you're going to get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to read verse... Verse 1, it says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So do you, you see what Paul is, is, is telling the church right there? He's saying to live a life pleasing to God, we're urging you to do that, to take the words, to take the gospel truth that has been cemented in your heart and live this out more and more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain His Holy Spirit to you. So what we see here is that sanctification is God's will. And it's also God's call in our lives as He's creating a deeper and more abiding righteousness and holiness in us. And part of that is what he sort of laid out in that, in that uh, passage, which was part of that is this work that we put into it as we pull away, as we abstain from things that used to characterize us. So sanctification, in a lot of ways, it's like watching a tree grow, okay? You, you planted a seed and the seed, seed had to be planted by you, didn't it? The seed couldn't get planted without you, but it doesn't end there. It's not like just a seed was planted and you walk away and you forget about it. No, you now need to water the seed and you need to weed the soil. So what happens is the seed receives the water and the nutrients from the soil through the water, and then it bursts through the soil into the sunshine, eventually sprouting leaves and then producing fruit. You guys are like, Ron, are you preaching? Are you just like, is this like, what, what are we talking about right now? Are you getting us through a gardening class right now? No, no, no. I'm trying to show you the process in which sanctification happens in our lives, the slow and the progressive process of it. So in other words, if our faith is true, or if our faith is true, it means leaves will sprout and fruit will follow. Right? Because if you plant that seed and you water it and you take care of it, every analogy breaks down, I know. But if you do your due diligence with the seed, it's going to come up, sprout, and it's going to produce fruit. So that that is just a snapshot of how we would define sanctification. Now, some of you guys have probably heard of this phrase, and I want to hit this phrase because this is At least, maybe in the past, I know growing up for me, it was a phrase that got tossed around a lot. But have any of you guys ever heard of the term carnal Christian? None of you. All right, I'm just going to skip this part. Two of you. Yes, thank Petrus. So, there's a phrase that some people use saying, well, he's just a carnal Christian. In other words, he's just kind of a fleshly guy. Yeah, he came to Christ a long time ago. You don't see any evidence of it, but he's still a Christian. But, you know, he's just kind of living for himself. And so he's just one of these brothers or sisters that just follows after his own pursuits and desires. But, but I mean, he, he says he knows Jesus. And so for those of you that have heard that phrase, what it's trying to say, maybe they use different words for it now, I'm just getting all 80s on you, is that um, you can be a Christian but never show any conformity to Christ or behavioral change. And the, the problem with that is that the Bible doesn't really have... A category for, for that being true on, on any level. Sanctification is the process of becoming who you now truly are in Christ, okay? So in other words, w- walking down an aisle at an altar call or repeating a prayer is, is not what saved you. If that was your experience, good. God uses that to save you, but it's not the act of doing that that means you can bounce back and say, well, I've been, I've been living like crazy, but you know, there was that time I walked down the aisle. Because the Bible doesn't really speak into that other than to say there wasn't a heart change that, that happened. So a, a fleshly or a sensual Christian, somebody who never shows any desire for the things of God and just keeps rolling down that path and in that lifestyle, it's kind of an oxymoron. It's kind of like a phrase I like to use when I say horribly great. Somebody will ask me how things are going. I say, oh, kind of horribly great. They say, well, I don't even know what that means. I'm like, yeah, I don't either No, But what I, what I mean by that is like God is doing something great and it's painful. But it's kind of an oxymoron, right? It's like how, how can something be horrible and great at the same time? So for us, as we're, as we're kind of getting into this, as we're understanding this, why, why is it important? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going down some lanes here with this. Why is it important to understand sanctification in this way? Well, it's because if you have a new nature... And that's what happens when Christ has, has, has saved you and God has justified you. If you have a new nature, that new nature will display its newness, right? It will show the effects of its newness. For example, like when I, when I dig up the roots, uh, we're just getting super gardening today. When I dig up the roots of a dead tree, and this has only happened like once because I don't, I don't do this stuff, but when I, when I dig up the roots of a dead tree in my garden and I plant a new tree... The new tree doesn't continue to rot like the old tree. I mean, I'm, that's, that's an example for me because I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm a little dense sometimes. So the new tree doesn't continue to rot like the old tree. If it's watered and cultivated, kind of like what we just said, it's going to produce new fruit. So for the Christian, we are promised, all right, if we have been justified and saved in Christ, we are promised to be watered and cultivated by the Holy Spirit. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. You want to make a right? Go back to Romans 6, verse 20. This is what happens to us. This is the effect of our new nature. Chapter 6, verse 20 in Romans. I'm going to read, and it says this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Because you couldn't be righteous because you are slave to sin, so the only thing you could do is sin. That's what he means. 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. And then verse 23 is one of the most famous verses in Scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the fruit we get from the Spirit leads to sanctification. And eventually, what it peaks at is eternal life with Christ, glorification with Him. And that, that, is, that is part of the joy that comes as we see ourselves growing and being conformed uh, to Christ. So we talk about sanctification in those ways and we talk about it being progressive and we talk about it being a process. So, so when we think about the process of sanctification, we need to understand that there's no, there's no, there's no seminar for sanctification, right? We, like we don't just have a sanctification class that you guys all attend and then you get there and we, you know, we give you like a certificate and then you're done being sanctified. Like that's not how it works. Um, it's not a 10-step program. It doesn't, there's nothing that leads to instantaneous Sanctification—it's—it's not like a Keurig, right? You don't just pop in the cup of your choice, you know, click brew. The cup comes out, and it's like I'm good. Never need another cup of coffee. Well, maybe you do because if you don't like Keurig, you know, I'm looking at looking at Long here, and he's already giving me snobby eyes about Keurig. But, um, but it's not—it's not like that. That's not what it's like. It's a lifelong. Here's what. Here, listen to what I'm saying here. When We talk about the process of sanctification. It's a lifelong process of pursuing righteousness. It's a lifelong process of pursuing righteousness, and the struggle is absolutely, all caps, real. The struggle is absolutely real. So how many of you guys have heard that—I'm doing really bad with my phrases—how many of you heard the phrase, let go and let God? All right, like nine of you. That's good. That's better. Well, it's actually a really bad phrase for us. It's not a great phrase because it's only partially true. Certainly, there are things that we need to let go of, okay? Okay? But we are not passive in our sanctification. So, the process of sanctification is that God is working in us and working through us. And the through part is the work that we do to uh, continue the process of our sanctification. Okay? We're not passive in it. God gives us heads, He gives us hearts, He gives us hands to get out there. And as James, the the brother of Jesus put it, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So we get out there and we get things done because he gave us the means to get things done, both spiritually and physically. So sanctification, this is what it is. It's living out the living faith that lives inside of us. And again, like we said before, it's a cooperative effort. We work hard towards righteousness When we discipline ourselves, Um, our motivations have changed now, but it means that we put in the hard work of pursuing righteousness, knowing that the Holy Spirit is working through our efforts. And as we go through the hard processes of sanctification, man, we're we're comforted. We're comforted in the fact that we're not alone. It's not completely up to us. It's not completely our doing. So it's kind of like driving a, a car, right? I mean, all you guys are driving cars unless you're too young or scared to drive cars, and and what you'll notice when you get into a car is that, man, man, the car, uh, if it runs, it has everything that you need, man. It has the engine that you need. It supplies all the power. Everything is there. It's contained, but, man, you still got to step on the gas. You still got to step on the gas pedal to get where you're going. Now, look, man, you can refuse to step on the gas, You can hope that you can get all Flintstones on this thing and hope that it'll just start like coasting down the street and you won't have to do anything. But here's the thing. When the auto doesn't go anywhere, you probably shouldn't blame the auto for not going anywhere because you decided not to step on the gas and steer that thing, all right? The car is capable of driving, but you got to drive it. You guys tracking with me on that? You guys got to drive it. Let's go to Philippians Right after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up with verse 12. Ephesians 2 verse 12. This is kind of how the process looks for us as we are this cooperative effort in our sanctification with God. Philippians 2 verse 12, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, kind of like we just said a minute ago, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't miss those last two words. So he says, work out your salvation, brothers and sisters. Live out the effect of being a free and a justified person. And he's saying, do it with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean like do it like you're terrified. He means like do it with reverence. He says, do it with humility. He says, have the humility of knowing that God is at work in you for his good pleasure. Do you guys catch those last three words? Here's what's important to remember about our sanctification. God sanctifies you. He sanctifies us for him. It's for him first and foremost. God sanctifies you. He conforms you deeper to the image of Christ and Christ's righteousness for himself. This means, this is good news. This means that your sanctification is not something that's all on you. It's not completely for you, nor is it completely on you. And so, you know, if if you guys had that beautiful, uh, terrifying white-knuckle experience when you were kids about learning how to ride your bike, when when your mom or dad taught you how to ride your bike, this is what happened, all right? You were pedaling your bike while they were running behind you, if they were good parents, with their hand on the seat, right? With their hand on your seat. Now, here's the thing, as a, as a, as a, you know, a, a semi-confident and mildly cocky five-year-old, um, it felt like you were riding, right? And you know what? You, you were. You, you were riding. But what you didn't know is that they helped keep you straight and balanced when you got wobbly. So here's the question. Could you have stopped pedaling at, at any moment? Yeah. Could you have run into a, a curb at any moment? Yeah. Could you have gotten stupid and, you know, pulled your hands off the bars at any moment? Yeah. Could you have crashed? Yeah. But your mom and dad were right there to pick you up when it happened, and you didn't realize it until you fell. And that's one of the beauties here that we see in this Philippians passage, that God is sanctifying you for his goodwill and his good pleasure. That's the cooperation that comes into that. So we work hard to pedal, knowing that God has us. He's holding the seat. You can go a long way without holding my seat thing. So let's just leave it right there. He's holding our seat. He has us. When we fall, he's right there. But we do it together. Now, there's two dangers, all right, with that we gotta, we got to kind of launch into a couple of dangers that come when we talk about sanctification and we start talking about effort. And I'm saying things like you got to get out there and you gotta, you got to do things. you got to pursue righteousness. you got to have discipline. So we got to kind of log in and kind of look at some of the dangers here that come with that if we get it mixed up and we screw up the process. The first one is called legalism. How many people have heard of legalism? All of you have heard of legalism. That's great. Legalism is this. Legalism is creating rules, and it's creating demands which God has absolutely not created or mandated in Scripture. So it's creating rules of which we think, if we do that, it means now I'm accepted by God. If we do that, it means now I'm approved by God. If we do that, that's the way that God sees me righteous. And obviously, reading passages like Ephesians 2, understanding that we've been saved by grace, just completely obliterates That frame of mind. And what we see this more fully lived out in the New Testament was with the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? They were people that didn't have a heart change, but they kept all the rules. And Jesus comes in and just literally obliterates their system and said, Here's the thing you're not righteous because you're trying to work your righteousness out of yourself. And it doesn't exist in there. And so it turns into legalities. We're trying to keep rules to earn God's favor. So that's an anti-biblical thing that, by the way, is super easy for us to fall into, okay? So that, that's not something we're going to preach here, but that's something that you, as you do the hard work of pursuing Christ and sanctification, you're going to have to be really, really aware and pray against having that puffing you up and making you feel like, yeah, I'm getting it done, man you got to really pray against that because if you were to look at sort of the, the storyline and the contours of my life since coming to know Christ at an early age, like I've struggled massively with that. That's been something that I've had to get good preaching on and have good repentance uh, towards because that, that's been a tough one for me. The second one is something, this is a nutty word I'm going to throw out there on you. It's called antinomianism. All right, So you got legalism, and they either, somebody couldn't find an easier word than that, so they, they called it antinomianism. And what it means is it's just the opposite. It's, what it's basically saying is, Ron, you talk all about grace. You talk about justification being a work by Christ alone. So that means, man, if I didn't do anything to earn it, I can't do anything to lose it. Kind of. Right? Kind of. Because we're saved by grace, it still means that we have to obey God's laws. And, in fact, obeying God's laws and pursuing Righteousness is one of the evidences that Christ has actually saved us, right? So we want to we be, be really aware that we're steering clear of those two polars of our sanctification, uh, which is legalism and antinomianism. And then in Romans 6, let me just read that. Romans 6, 1 through 2. You can turn there or you cannot turn there, which, by the way, is always your option. But uh, chapter 6, verse 1, this is Paul. And he said, what shall we say then? Talking about antinomianism. He said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, like, if if God's grace comes to us as sinners, why don't we just keep sinning so that we'll see more of God's grace? And he says in verse 2, by no means, absolutely not. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So He's posing the question. If you've died to your sin, you can't still be living in your sin. So let's finish up by talking about this. What does living the sanctified life look like? What does it look like? What are some of the traits? What are some of the markers for us as we are pursuing righteousness As we are trying to kill the works of the flesh like we learned at the beginning of May when we talked in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. What does living the sanctified life look like? Number one, it means you obey Jesus. You should thank me for that because we just tried to flesh out a word called antinomianism. So you obey Jesus. And what that means is you have a heart and an affection and a growing love and desire for everything of who Jesus is and what he did and how he lives and what he has for your life. What it means is that your motivations change. You guys remember the story, uh, Christmas Carol of Ebenezer Scrooge, like one of my favorite stories. What happened to Ebenezer is that he was justified at the end of the story. And what did he do? What did he do when he woke up? Well, he, he embarked on a changed life. Like, he wasn't just living the way he was. Like, Ebenezer didn't wake up saying, thank you, uh, ghost of Christmas future, for not destroying my life, and then go and then go to his basement and just start stacking his money and counting his money and being all miserly again. No, he actually, he actually turned from his sin and obeyed, obeyed the ghost of Christmas future, for lack of a better way to phrase it, and he started being generous. He turned from his besetting sin and pursued generosity. Well, here's a question for y'all. You think our boy Ebenezer still struggled with loving money? I mean, what, one night, one dream, that's it? Like he doesn't care about money anymore? No. He still struggled with loving money. I'm just reading into the story a little bit further. Um, Which is why he knew he needed to give it away, right? So there was a heart change in Ebenezer. And the effect of that was that instead of being miserly, he became generous. So what we got to remember as we as we pursue Jesus, all right, as we obey Jesus, is that sin is always crouching at the door. Remember that line from when Cain killed Abel? And God said, sin is crouching at your door, brother, but you have to master it. You have to not let it control you. Sin is always crouching at our door, but we master it by being aware of its control and give in to a greater control, which is the control of the Spirit, which now has control over us, giving us the ability to obey. See, before Christ, you had no ability to obey. Nobody obeys God. Good people doing nice things are living in rebellion against God. They're not obeying God. Well, I saw a dude yesterday like walk you know, walk a lady across the street. It was nice, but he's not living a life of obedience to God because he's denying the cross. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If he would have just said, keep my commandments, how different would it be for us? But see how he prefaces it with? He prefaces it with love. If you love me, and we know that for those that God has saved, the love of Christ is now in them. So if you've been saved, the love of Christ is in you, and if you love Christ, you'll keep his commandments. So you'll obey Jesus too. How do we live the sanctified life? You'll obey Jesus too. You will grieve over your, your sin. You'll grieve over your sin. You'll have godly guilt and remorse over your sin. You'll be sensitive to things you know don't please the Lord. Right? So there's like this meter in you that continues to grow in sensitivity to those things that you are, those paths that you are walking down that you know are in disobedience to God. Second Corinthians 7 says, for godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, worldly grief, in other words, I know I shouldn't do that, but worldly grief is, I just hope I don't get caught. Worldly grief produces death, it says. Just love Paul, just not a subtle guy. And I love that. So this is, this is what's different, okay? This is what's different with your language. Listen to this. A Christian doesn't say, that's just who I am. That's just who I am. Sorry. No, you don't have that luxury anymore. You know why? Because that's not who you are, if you're a Christian. A Christian says, that's who I was. While acknowledging, listen, while acknowledging that sin is still there wanting To hang out, man. Like sin is right there, right at the door, wants to come in, wants to party, wants to hang. I mean, sin is like the relative who always shows up at Thanksgiving and starts trouble. Man, inevitably, it's that guy, right? It's the uncle. He comes in, you're like, that's like sin. But you know what happens? You fight against it. You fight against it because now there's a grief that comes over your sin Because you have a different heart now that is sensitive to that sin. If you have no fight, listen, if you have no fight over your sin, there's going to be no fruit, which means there might be no faith. So be real clear about that in your life. If you're somebody who says, Ronnie, it's been years and years, it's not just a season. We're talking about a lifetime of years and years. Now, for example, I had a talk with a couple uh, months ago who were living together, and all they wanted to know was how they could retain that lifestyle but still be in the grace of God. And I said, well, you, you can't. You can't because you're doing something that God has clearly laid out in Scripture that, that is, is against His, his will. And they said, well, but, but if we do this, and then if we do that, like, will that make that okay? And I said, well, it won't, because you're, you're missing the larger point, which is that if you love Jesus, the first thing you're going to want to do is not grieve him, and you're going to want to turn from this sin, you're going to want to turn. Well, if, if we do that, I mean, it just, it means all of our finances are screwed up. And then where's he going to live? And then, and then what about, you know, what about that we can't get married for a year? And what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, again, you, you keep asking about details instead of saying, what would the Lord have me do? And what would the love of Christ compel me to do? That's the question that we ask. Not what kind of trouble and wreckage is this going to put my life in? It's actually just the opposite. Your, your life's already in trouble and wreckage. You just don't, don't see it. So you grieve over your sin and you turn from it. Number three, and finally, you see progress, all right? Sanctification is joy. It's joy because you see progress. And man, sometimes it's slow. It's brutally slow. God has a tendency of being slow, He's a slow God. He's patient. It says that about him. God is patient. He's slow to anger. He wants to see people come to know him, and he wants to see the people that know him become more like him, and he gives us time. So it's slow. Sanctification is slow, but it is progress. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit becoming more evident in your life than the works of the flesh. Let me just say this about myself, all right? I see myself more, more loving now th- th- than I used to be. I see myself more gentle. I see myself more, more, uh, I, I see myself more, more peaceful. So I, I can look back and I can, look, I, can, I can see a trajectory of the ways in which God has, has sanctified me in some of these areas that have been a massive struggle. And, and let me just say that I still struggle in them massively. But man, I, 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 I want to progress because I know that the Lord's will for me is progressing in his love and in in my affection for him. So I want to progress in those things. And then there's a joy that comes when I see Christ more evident in in those things, when I'm quicker to repent, when my mind is more preoccupied with loving Jesus and serving others rather than my own comfort and my laziness and my preponderance on myself. I can see that happen. When I see me being less about me, I see sanctification at work. So there's progress, but there's also, there's also peaks and valleys, okay? There's also peaks and valleys. And we're still sinners in this. That's the piece in this game that we have to remember. We're still sinners, and although sanctification means we begin to sin less, all right? It narrows. It also means we're going to experience seasons in our life when our fruit count has hit an all-time low. That happens to us. The encouraging thing is that if you're really justified, God doesn't just leave you in this place. He doesn't leave you there. He uses this. He uses the church. He uses pastors like Big R here. He uses leaders. He uses brothers and sisters. He uses church discipline, which is why it's important to become a member of the church. Because we're a church that practices church discipline so that we can gracefully go to you when you are straying and wandering. And we can say, brothers and sisters, come on back. We love you. Don't. Come back. So that's what, that's what God uses to add water in life to those desert times when you experience a spiritual drought. Let's go one more time to Philippians chapter 3 as we're wrapping it up. Philippians 3. Verse 12. Philippians 3.12, it says this. This is Paul talking about his sanctification, the righteousness that he has in Christ. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. This is Paul. He's saying, I'm not there, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He said, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. You're not getting all cocky because he's writing three quarters of the New Testament, right? He says, but one thing I do. He says, this is what I do. Notice the word do. Forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... Like if you're screwed up in your thinking, if you just start to get all scrambled and you don't know how to think about this and you wonder about, well, man, am I growing in Christ? Am I not? Well, he says right here, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So God is going to be faithful to sanctify you, right? And then 18, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And that's encouraging for us because the apostle Paul, his brother is saying, oh my gosh, man, I haven't gotten there. I haven't attained this, but I'm going to press forward towards it. It gives us a picture of what our lives can look like. So let's just keep this real sharp as we end. A couple of things. Number one, if your faith has been lying dormant for too long, by too long, I mean a long time. By dormant, I mean, Ronnie, I'm 50, and I walked down an aisle 30 years ago. If your faith has been lying dormant for too long, you need to ask yourself if there's a faith. I say that out of love and grace and concern for you. If you're concerned about that, you guys all right here, if you are concerned about that as I'm talking, there's a good chance that there is a faith. But you need to ask why it's gone cold and why it's grown dull. And you need to ask what's replacing that first love relationship that you may have once had with Jesus after he justified you. Ask those questions. And let me just say this. If this, if all of this reignites a passion that you once had for the things of God, that in and of itself is a sanctifying spark that will lead to fruit. Let me go further. If you repent of your lazy, bored barely interested heart for the Christian faith, that in and of itself is a sanctifying spark that will lead to fruit. It also might be your justification. Either way, you know your gods. Does that make sense? Because here's the questions for us. If you love Jesus, the one who died The one who lived, died, and rose for you. Will you obey him? Will you obey his commands when they cost you? All right? Will you obey when you don't feel like it? Will you obey when his commands don't make any sense to you? Will you obey because you believe pleasing the Lord is better than a life lived otherwise? C.S. Lewis says this, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. So are you willing to go home today and throw something away in your life that doesn't please God? Are you willing to break off a relationship that doesn't please God? Are you willing to give something up that doesn't please God? Are you willing to stop doing something that will make somebody angry because you know it displeases God? So what I'm asking at the end of all of this to you and to me is are we willing to drop our faces to the floor and repent to God for the idols that we have clung on to that we know do not please Him. And there's there's hope in this. You know why there's hope in this? Because all of you are breathing right now. I don't know what's gonna happen when you get home. I don't know, I'm not gonna doom and gloom you right now, but I don't know if you're gonna make it home. You Nobody has any assurance of that. Nobody has any assurance they're going to be eating turkey sandwiches at one o'clock today. I mean, none of you all know any of that right now. But you're here. Oh, you're here right now. You're here right now. That in and of itself, the fact that you got up this morning, there was gas in your tank, there's cereal in your belly, there's kids with clothes on, and you drove to this church and are sitting in these seats. That was an act of grace in your life to hear this so that you could do the work that God is calling you to do. So approach God today, this morning, with honesty and with helplessness. Honesty and helplessness. If he could raise you, a dead person, back to life— Do we doubt that he'll complete the job? Do you doubt that pleasing God is the path to your joy and your contentment? I think we do, because I do. I know I do. So the call this morning is to repentance, to repent and let the joy of obedience renew or begin our sanctification as justified sinners, saved by God's generous grace. That's the beauty right there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your generous grace. Thank you for Christ's Death-defying work on the cross. Lord, thank you that you justify us and you also sanctify us. And thank you that you give us the joy of working with you in this progressive process, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us here today, Lord. Encourage those of us who are struggling, that we find ourselves in places, in phases and stages and seasons of life where we are just flat. And we feel like we are distant from you. We know you, but we are distant from you. Lord, you do such a great work in us by revealing our sins to us and drawing us to a place where we have to confront you. We have to confront our sin. It's a gracious thing because we don't want to marinate in that. We don't want that sin to become a a place in our lives that just becomes a lifestyle. So Lord, I pray that we would go before you in honesty right now and in helplessness. Say, Lord, I know I know you. I believe these words. I believe I've been justified. But man, my sanctification is at a low, low, low point. I'm in a valley. Lord, you hear us. Lord, in your spirit works in us and you intercede to the Father for us Our prayers are heard. And Lord, you renew us and you refresh us. You take us where we are, Lord. I pray that you would do that. And for those, Lord, who have not even received this justification, I pray that they would take a moment, Lord, and consider what it is that their sin is doing in their life and where it is taking them and the ramifications of where it ultimately leads them. And I pray that they would see the grace and the joy and the comfort that comes from confessing our sins to you, being saved by you, having the righteousness of Christ laid upon us so that we can be alive people. We can be people that have gone from death to life. We're not just living for our own pleasure, but we're living for those things that are pleasing to you, which give us our greatest pleasure. Or change us this morning, I pray. Help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, all God's people said.